Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. All right, everybody, welcome to the Ethics Experts. I'm your host, Giovanni Gallo. This episode is brought to you by Compliance Line, and welcome to our show today. I'm super excited to introduce Christopher Michelson to you. We're going to have a great conversation about ethics today, but before we get there, I want to welcome each of you to the show today, and if you're a subscriber or a repeat listener, welcome. I'm so glad you're here, and that's what you're going to get if you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. With every show, you're going to get an extra, special, an extra special welcome for being a subscriber to the Ethics Expert. So hit that subscribe button, share this episode with your friends, and let's continue to uh, share the best things we have in ethics and compliance. Without further ado, welcome Christopher Michelson. Michelson. Um, thank you for being here. Um, we're super excited to have you here. Uh, if you don't know him, everyone, I want to let you know that Christopher is the Opus Distinguished Professor of Principled Leadership at the University of St. Thomas. And he's also the co-director of the Melrose and the Toro Company Center for Principled Leadership. He teaches in the Business and Society Program at New York University, NYU, and does a bunch of other things. Uh, Christopher, so glad that you're here today. I've seen some of your stuff, read some of your articles, and I'm really interested to get into a discussion with you today. Welcome to the show. Giovanni, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. All right. So getting into it, I love, you know, ethics experts is about the personal stories of people in the ethics industry um, and would love to just talk a little bit about what your career path has been and how you ended up in, uh, in, in a role in ethics. So tell us how you got your start. You know, when I first heard about the ethics experts, I was wondering who did you refer to or who did you mean to refer to as the ethics experts? I wasn't sure if it was you and Nick, if it was your guests, or, you know, if it was tongue in cheek, because one thing that I'll say is that I am not an ethics expert. Um, you might know that one of the oldest, um, baddest lines in philosophy is that Socrates was the wisest man in Athens because he knew what he didn't know. And, you know, I first learned that line in college and I didn't really understand what it meant, but more and more as I get older and older, I feel like I understand that nobody is an ethics expert and the most dangerous people are the people who think that they are. So uh, I'm actually as ignorant as anybody else. <laughs> yeah, if I can jump in, um, there, was a, there was a bit of a question there. Uh, it's probably all three of those in rank order. So first, as a guest, you are officially now about two minutes into the show, an ethics expert. So congratulations. Please, um, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's meant to feature our guests. Uh, but it also is a little bit tongue in cheek because uh, you can't really bottom out and perfect ethics, right? It's uh, it's multifaceted. It has all these angles. Um, so, you know, it's really all of those things. And, you know, uh, if, you know, uh, if you put the tongue in cheek thing aside, uh, if you if one could be an ethics expert, then uh, Nick and I are aspiring and we learn a lot through these interactions. Uh, so, you know, we hope to one, one day, um, you know, be whatever can qualify for that. But mostly at its base, uh, we like to feature our guests and, and feature people who have thoughtful views on ethics, the practice and the implementation of programs around it. That's great. And I, I also don't mean to denigrate you or any of your past guests who are experts on something. You know, yeah. I, I think that you can be an expert, for example, on managing ethics in organizations. Sure. Um, but nobody knows the final answers to the most difficult questions. And that's yeah. why we continue to, to ask them. I, I really don't mean to be falsely modest, but I will say that some of the 
kindest, most generous people that I've ever met are in the ethics and compliance business, mm -hmm. but also some of the scariest people that I've ever met are in the ethics and compliance business. And I think part of that has to do with that ethics and compliance really became a business within the last you know, 25 years, which is pretty much longer than the length of my career so far. And I think in that respect, ethics and compliance as a business is a little bit of a gold rush still. And so it attracts some wonderful people who want to make the world a better place. And it also attracts some people who think ethics. Now that's where I can make a lot of money. Ah, that's interesting. And uh, what do you think drives that? So there's a bit of a gold rush. There's growth in this industry. Budgets are growing for what people spend on this, but that's also happening in tech and marketing and stuff. What do you think is happening in the ethics industry kind of related to that piece that, you know, you think maybe some people are doing it for the wrong reasons, if, you know, without putting any words in your mouth? Well, I think we also see in tech and marketing and social media marketing, et cetera, that the gold rush has some unintended consequences. You know, I don't think people by and large set out to do bad things, but if they don't put ethics in front, then they can unintentionally do some bad things and exacerbate those bad things by growing bigger and badder mm -hmm. if they're not um, looking out for this. So yeah. I do think that there's something in common between the relatively nascent ethics industry and the relatively nascent social media marketing industry. Okay. Um, but I'll also say that if you're an ethics expert, then you also know where the bodies are buried. And so you know your way around um, you know, all the controls and so on. And so you can actually be dangerous. I can't remember what studies in particular, but I do remember over the years looking at studies that suggest that Sometimes some of your ethically dangerous employees in your organizations are the ones who have been around a long time, who are trusted and so on, because they know their way, not only through the organization, but also around its controls. So I think there's something to an expert having those qualities. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I get that point about, you know, someone who's steeped in this or a company that is so trusted it's maybe easier for them to go awry because people are maybe not looking as hard or assume that it would go right. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that maybe increases maybe the need for controls, but also just the need to have people in these roles be able to be trusted with the power that they're given and be able to wield that power justly to, you know, uh, serve others and make other people's lives better. Um, and, you know, you know, maybe even be self-aware enough to watch out for themselves and how they might slip into that. Yeah. What I don't want to happen is somebody who listens to this to go and fire their long-term employees because, you know, they know their way around the organization. That's usually an asset and yeah. um, often is, but I do think that um, we can get complacent. And I think complacency when it comes to ethics is really dangerous. Um, by the way, I said that I've met some really wonderful people and some kind of scary people in this business. And I don't mean to suggest that I'm you know, purely wonderful. Um, I hope my family sometimes thinks I'm wonderful, but I also think that I'm a little bit of a mixed bag. You know, I, I tell my students, if I were ethically perfect, I would be a terrible teacher of business ethics because I wouldn't understand the kinds of pressures that ordinary people are subjected to in the course of trying to perform professionally. I do understand those things and I am vulnerable to them 
like most ordinary people. Interesting. Yeah. I really love that perspective. I, you know, it's, um, you know, you're saying that if I was ethically per- perfect, I maybe wouldn't be as good at teaching or helping people see kind of some of these gray areas or how to look out for this thing, or maybe in a professional context, how to put controls about it and, you know, put controls around those things or help, help people see a different way of doing it. Um, that, that empathy and that context and the fact that, Hey, you know what? Yeah, I was tempted by this thing once, or, you know, I see how someone might slip on this makes us better at understanding it and hopefully having an impact for good. Um, you know, we should recognize, I think to your point that we're not perfect and also recognize that, you know, the fact that we struggle, you know, we're all human and we struggle with the same things can make us more effective at doing that. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, there's a philosopher named Susan Wolf who wrote an article called Moral Saints that's been pretty influential among moral philosophers. And she suggests not only that moral saints have trouble empathizing with ordinary people, but also moral saints are kind of boring. You know, some of the most interesting people in the world are not moral paragons. So I think I, I'm going to misquote this a little bit, but she says something about it's possible possible to be perfectly wonderful without being perfectly good. Oh, I like that. You can be perfectly wonderful without being perfectly good. Yeah, it reminds me of something that I think um, Abraham Maslow studied this a bunch. And he says that, you know, even these giants of, you know, service or industry or leadership, they're not perfect. There are no perfect people. And we should be able to look at them, admire their positive traits, understand that there are negative things and learn from those and do it both without judgment, but there are no perfect people. You know, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that we are living in a time where we are holding people to a standard of perception, perfection mm-hmm. in public life that is maybe unrealistic. Um, we are all imperfect. And so I think that we have to sometimes forgive our imperfections. Um, You also brought up a word, empathy, that I think matters a lot. So you and I were talking before we started recording about the word empathy and about how, for example, literature, the arts, humanities, et cetera, teach us to empathize with real human beings. In fact, sometimes I say that the only way that we can truly get into another human being's head is through literature. You can only infer what's in somebody else's head, but in literature, you're actually reading somebody's stream of consciousness. It might be an author's invented stream of consciousness, but still you're kind of metaphorically inside another person's head. And um, Dostoevsky wrote a book called the idiot, which I've tried reading like five times and never really gotten through or understood. But what I do think I understand is that it's supposed to be about a morally perfect individual Mm -hmm. and sort of satirizing the idea that somebody can be morally perfect. And I think part of the reason I've never made my way through it is that Susan Wolf was right. It's kind of boring to read about a morally perfect person. Yeah. There's no edge to it, huh? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Not that he didn't um, write some other great books, but yeah, and some of those are hard to get through as well. <laughs> they are, yeah. <laughs> at least long. Um, yes, yeah, but I, you know, I, I like that angle of you know literature helping us understand other people, and you know, for practitioners who are running a corporate compliance program, or you know, someone like you who's trying to teach people to you know understand the the edges of this and how 
you know, purpose can drive uh, betterment for our lives, it's, it's helpful to understand those edges of it and understand kind of where it goes wrong. And, you know, I think even understand that this thing that we're talking about ethics, you know, you brought up this great point earlier that it kind of happens in this gray area or it happens not intentionally, you know, certainly some people set out and they say, I'm going to pull all of these moves to defraud somebody and I'm going to steal someone's credit card information. There are certainly people who do that. But I think, you know, as I've seen people come into our company at Compliance Line or, you know, ask me about, well, you know, like, you know, uh, what is compliance and what is ethics and stuff like that? They go to, okay, you got to find the robbers. You got to keep, you know, the people who want to direct, you know, you got to keep all the sociopaths out of the organization. Good luck, by the way. Um, But, you know, you got to stop these like intentional massive bad actors. But a lot of, I think, the frontier that we're trying to push ethics on is maybe that person didn't know about it, or maybe they thought it was excusable, or maybe in their culture, that's okay. Or maybe, you know, they just think that, you know, you know, they can maybe not get away with it, but they can do this without hurting somebody. Um, And I think that's the front that, you know, I would maybe say that a totally moral person is boring and a totally, you know, insanely evil person is just like, okay, you're always just going to be doing the bad thing in the middle, I think is where it's interesting, but also where it's challenging for us to parse that and say, okay, you know, this thing is too far. That's too big of a gift that becomes a bribe or whatever it might be. Some of the things that you were saying are really familiar to me from my prior career before I was an academic as a business ethics advisor. And I remember sitting, you know, this is around the turn of the century when my career began. I remember talking with clients and they would say exactly what you said, you know, we got to find the psychopaths, but Mm -hmm. they'd say something like 99% of our people are good people. We just have to have this program to catch the robbers. And I would nod in agreement. I was a philosopher. I believed that I I still am a philosopher and I still believe that um, human nature is generally good. So I would, I would nod in agreement, but in the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, as my academic career has progressed, I have learned a lot from non-philosophers, especially um, behavioral ethicists who are studying that even if you are a, quote, good person, you're probably pretty vulnerable to judgments um, that are erroneous, um, pretty vulnerable to just selfish impulses some of the time, and of course, especially vulnerable to pressure. And so the kinds of ethics and compliance programs that you help your clients build and that I used to help clients with are really as much to catch the robbers um, or there is much to um, help those of us who are trying to do the right thing, but are morally vulnerable from veering in the wrong direction. They're just as much for those people as they are for the psychopaths. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's just as important, you know, I, you know, I, sometimes I think of the progression of this industry, you know, I think you said that 25 years ago, this wasn't a formal industry or something like that, you know, as it's progressed, I kind of think through it through phases. So we developed software here. So, you know, we have versions. So version 1.0 of compliance was like, stop the psychopaths and keep the board out of jail. And you know what, there's a lot of clear risk management ROI that you get from that of like, okay, you know, I kept one person from stealing $10 million. Cool. Like, you know, there's my ROI. Um, and, you know, I, I, I like that framework of, you know, 99% of our people are good. I think you and I could nod to that and say, yeah, probably, you know, most of your people 
the vast majority of people are not like abjectly evil and let's find that 1%. But then, you know, maybe it's kind of this bell curve of, well, then there are a bunch of people below that 1% that are very, probably very susceptible to these things, right? They're, you know, such, you know, I like you said, selfish impulses, errors in judgment, pressure, some of these things, they would be picked off. If someone was social engineering and trying to figure out how to get this done, there are some of those that are easy to get. And maybe that was 2.0. Okay, well, let's at least do training and let's like scale a program and make sure there's some e-learning and some policies. And then we're kind of pushing this past the board into the whole organization. And at least everyone's on notice about this. So, you know, we can catch some of that. And, you know, my... Uh, my theory or my thesis is that we're kind of, you know, more of companies are moving into this 3.0 world that is maybe better informed by behavioral ethicists that is kind of closer into, you know, you're past the middle of your bell curve and it's, you know, you're not to the moral saints yet, right? Like maybe that's 1% of the people, but you're in this group of people who want to do well, but they need, you know, they need some guardrails or they need some training or they need some oversight or they need to be able to ask about stuff or they need psychological safety to speak up in an organization. And, you know, I feel like more and more companies are getting past, you know, past just the board, past just, well, let's put a program in place and make sure we have policies, but let's make sure it's actually effective and people are engaging with these ethical dilemmas or engaging with these things that we want to do in a way that gets past, you know, the really risky people into kind of that bulk of our population that need this. And it's probably not, hey, I saved the company $10 million today by doing this, but it's, I helped, you know, 20,000 people better understand this so that they're not kind of sliding into this. Yeah, well said. And one thing that I'll add is that that 99% are good people figure I have learned in recent days is probably overly optimistic. Um, I've gotten to know a guy named Craig Newman, who's a psychopathologist Mm -hmm. through the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, and he estimates that, uh, or his research and that of others estimates that the number of people who have um, what they call um, non-affiliative traits, aversive traits, maybe they call them, is higher than 1%. And in some classes of people, especially U.S. senators, way higher than one percent right frighteningly enough (laughs) scary (laughs) yeah um but yeah it's out there right like it's not one percent you know i think depending you know i've like read a couple abstracts and studies if you look at the psychopath or the sociopath sampling rate it's you know people say it's kind of seven to twenty percent which is kind of scary um and that also samples higher in some of these things you know maybe it's senators it's probably in you know ceos and company executives and some of these some of these things that you maybe have to claw to the top to get there, um, you know, you're probably, you know, so, some of those things may hit sample higher than that. Um, but regardless, it's probably one. It's probably higher than one percent in any population. Yeah, and I want to I want to pick up on another thing that you said, which is that there's a sense in which these programs that we're talking about are often put into place in order to prevent people from breaking the rules, to act as guardrails for well-intentioned people who are who are human. I think that the next frontier in ethics and compliance management has to do less with loss prevention and more to do with value creation. I think ethics and compliance is often looked at as a cost of doing business, but the more it's looked at, not only as an asset for making money, but also a way in which the organization makes the world a better place, I think that it becomes much more attractive to people who want to work for an organization that has a decent purpose. Yeah. That's making things to 
save lives, to make life easier, to make life more plentiful, to help the planet, and so on. I think that's really important. And for a long time, ethics and compliance management has kind of focused on downside prevention. Yes. Yeah, it's um, it's such a good point. And I think you articulate so well something that I hear you know, talked about and discussed in, you know, the chat on, you know, an ECI event or, you know, talking to people at a conference or, um, you know, just uh, talking on the phone with other people in uh, the ethics industry, we get the sense that, well, that's what we want, that, you know, we think that the job that we're doing as ethics practitioners is not just to like, make sure like all the money's still in the till and no one like slipped a five into their pocket, but we're trying to, you know, the way we say it at compliance line is make the world a better workplace. We Want, we think that there's value, it, it hits the bottom line, but also values to people's lives to allow them to work in an ethical workplace where they're treated well and they have purpose. And, you know, I think that there's, you know, there's positive pressure coming from a lot of di different directions that's helping people realize that this compliance and ethics function at a company is not just a cost center. It's something that can help, you know, it can you know, everyone's talking, a lot of people are talking about the great resignation and people are leaving. Well, you know, it's not just for pay, right? They're like, well, fine, I'll give you a raise. You can stay. And they're like, this company doesn't fit with me. You know, this company doesn't live the values that I want to spend my life putting, you know, so many hours of, uh, of my day into. Um, and that, you know, those issues of purpose and impact and, you know, what's the point of it? And, am you know, am I going to be proud? Like you said, like, can, can my family look at me and be proud of the job that I did? Not just because I didn't get fired or got a paycheck, but because I'm making a positive impact in the world. I think everyone has always cared about that. And maybe it's a change in culture or generation or, you know, just kind of like uh, economic prosperity. But also I think people are just realizing that, you know what, this is important enough that this should be on my criteria for a job, not just, you know, location and pay or something like that. So I'm actually co-authoring two books right now with my friend and collaborator, Jennifer Tosti Karras of Babson College. And they're both on the topics of meaningful work, purpose, and so on. And one of the questions that I think is unanswered is, have people always cared about meaning and purpose at work? Or is this truly a generational thing? You know, recently books have been published with the titles the passion economy, the purpose economy, and so on. And I do think that there's something different now, in part because of the century that we're in. Okay. Jen and I first started researching together when we were both actually um, management consultants living and working in New York City on 9-11-2001. And so our first research project together after we were academics was understanding the place of work in the lives of 9-11 victims as wow. they were remembered. Yeah. And I think those of us who remember that day, remember how unimportant some forms of work seemed on that day because they weren't the really important stuff that these victims would never experience again. Um, meanwhile, other forms of work seemed truly essential like the work of first responders, for example, or in my case, you know, I was stranded in Washington, DC, trying to get back to New York. And even the work of the hotel staff, that was essential. They gave me a place to sleep. Um, but we didn't really understand the meaning of the term essential work until the pandemic. And now we really understand there are some forms of work that our society really cannot do without. And so I think 
although not all essential work is attractive, not all, you know, often essential work is dangerous, unsafe, and so on. Um, there is something special about doing work that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how um, those, you know, kind of the respect or attractiveness of something is not always tied to the depth of the purpose or the meaning or how essential it is. Um, and maybe that's something that we as a society can do better at, or maybe it's just, you know, a natural function of, you know, we're t- we tend to look for the shiny thing and, you know, not be as thankful for the water coming out of our tap as the new Amazon box that shows up. Maybe that's just a function of, you know, human psychology. But I think it is something that, to your point, in the pandemic, we've gotten a new appreciation for, wow, you know, that person checking on my groceries, if they weren't here, I'd be in a tough spot. And that's not, you know, that's something I should be appreciative of you know, truckers, nurses, these types of things, like these, these keep us going. And, you know, even if, uh, you know, I'm not watching YouTube videos about like how cool it is to be a checkout clerk, I should have some respect for the dignity of the dignity of that role, the purpose of it. And the fact that they're providing real value that, you know, they're probably not going to get, you know, 10,000 TikTok likes, uh, when talking about their job, but they should get our respect and our esteem because there's purpose and dignity behind it. Yeah. And as you suggested, pay is not always commensurate with purpose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we might say, well, that's just how the market works. But the market, as Adam Smith imagined it, you know, more than 200 years ago, is not devoid of moral sentiments. Mm -hmm. And so those moral sentiments can actually influence how much we get paid for things that matter. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I, you know, I was, uh, maybe what reading a discussion or, or an article that's talking about, you know, Adam Smith is known, you know, and this may represent some things about how our society has, um, kind of prioritized things over the past generation. But at least to me, Adam Smith was more known for like his economic work on, uh, the wealth of nations, but he wrote also, what is it? The theory of moral sentiments or something. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, he was just as much a philosopher and an ethicist and he understood how these things were tied the way that the machine of the economy works and also the way that people make decisions and care about things and have purpose and meaning um you know and morality um you know i think he had an understanding of how those were tied and one body of his work kind of defined an entire uh you know not just a uh you know the career in the industry of economists but you know a lot of the you know our economic policies and the way that countries were directed um, but he saw that both of those were tied. And I think, you know, I'd like to think and I uh, tend to think that uh, this is, there's grounds for this hope that I have, that we as a society in many ways are coming around to realize that both of those are tied and that they don't compete and you don't have to pick one, um, but you can have ethics and economic prosperity. You can have a positive view of people and make their, their lives prosperous and also develop, you know, economically things that, you know, improve people's lives and make their lives easier and things like that. So a little over 10 years ago, I proposed to the World Economic Forum that it would be interesting to do a panel in Davos on what CEOs were reading. What were the books that most shaped their personal and professional lives? And that panel happened a few times. The first time it happened, the write-up after the session designated four books as classics of business literature. One was Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. One was Sun Tzu's The Art of War. One was Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species. And one was Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince. And 
not only can I pretty much guarantee that most of the executives who were talking hadn't read one <laughs> nor all of those books, <laughs> right. but I can also say that it depicts a pretty ugly picture of capitalism if those are the four books that sort of shape what capitalism ought to be. You know, even uh, you know, as you and I say, Adam Smith didn't think of the invisible hand as an immoral hand, but I think people often oversimplify and misinterpret it to be just that, an amoral hand at the, at the yeah. very least. Um, but my hope in that session was to get some other great ideas for the kinds of books that executives should read. So I've kind of been on a mission since then to kind of identify what are the works that ought to be classics of business literature. And at or very near the top of my list is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was written not all that far apart from The Wealth of Nations. Yeah. A book about a guy who has this ambition to do something amazing, you know, make life out of lifeless parts. And he accomplishes that purpose, but at what cost? Um, and then he doesn't tend to the object of his creation very much as, um, you know, big technology companies are sometimes creating these amazing things that we did not imagine could come into existence, but not really tending to the unintended consequences of their coming into being. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that. <laughs> maybe uh, CEOs, especially to the extent that, uh, like I was saying earlier, um, maybe they oversample on some of these uh, aversive traits should be reading, reading some more of these cautionary tales um, and understanding better how things could go wrong instead of how to just exhort your will uh, as a force on the market around you. I definitely don't mean to be hating on business or to be hating on sure. CEOs, by the way. I got my PhD from a philosophy program where a lot of people did kind of hate on business. I remember that quite clearly. <laughs> and I would sometimes think, but these computers that we're writing our papers on and these desks that we're learning at and so on, weren't they made by businesses? Right. So I actually, I left the study of pure moral philosophy to join a big four firm in New York City because I thought business is this incredibly powerful social institution that, yeah, sometimes it does make the world worse, but it has this opportunity to make the world better. Right. And so I'd like to be part of helping it to make the world better. And I think in its ideal state, that's what business can do. I love that. Um, probably because I agree with it a lot. Um, but also, you know, that's that, you know, I, I lead a business here. We employ people and build software and provide services and, you know, send invoices out and try to, you know, make profits and we can reinvest in the business. But the way we talk about things when we're onboarding new employees, we do something called day zero and, you know, we, we, the way we start our meetings and what we celebrate, it's around our values and it's around our impact and it's around our mission. And, you know, I like what you said, something like, you know, business is this social institution, right? It's not just like this faceless machine, but it's a social institution that um, can be a powerful force for good in the world, in economies, in communities, and in, and in individual people's lives. And it's interesting how, you know, I think that that view of like, you know, business being cold hearted and the invisible hand being amoral or immoral. Um, you know, I think it's been pretty pervasive. I'm not sure if it's been a majority, but you know, it's been pretty common. Um, but at the same time, we're dealing with this thing in society where business is like one of the last 
remaining institutions that people trust and rely on because all of these other, you know, uh, you know, social institutions, government, religion, our community have either kind of dissipated or like, you know, gotten their knees knocked out from them from, you know, scandals and things like that. And that may be related to your point earlier about uh, we have an unrealistic expectation for things, but, you know, as it stands, you know, there's some studies that say that people trust their, you know, they, they trust their workplace, like not as well as, you know, we'd like a lot of things to be trusted, but more than their government, or more than, you know, the local religious institution or something like that. And I'd be interested, Christopher, you know, certainly comment on that if you want, but I'd be interested in how that's tied to, you know, uh, there was something I reading about you that says that you study how meaning and purpose in life and at work can improve our own and others' lives. And I imagine that gets into your teaching uh, as a professor and how you teach students. Um, you know, what, what could you reflect on for us around that purpose and meaning and how that's tied to work and, you know, where you would like to see that go? First of all, I just want to comment that I think it's an amazing statistic that we trust business more than we trust government. I think that's great that we trust business. <laughs> um, we didn't so much after, for example, the Great Recession, um, but that has recovered. But trust in business or trust in government has declined. And I hope we get back to a point where we can trust both. <laughs> I don't think it's a good thing that yeah. we mistrust government. Yeah, I'd love um, to see trust in all of these be earned and be higher than where it is, right? Absolutely, yeah. With regard to how can meaning and purpose improve our own and others' lives? I went into philosophy to study the meaning of life. That was the only question for me. And then I discovered that to be in a graduate program in philosophy in the 20th century was not to study the meaning of life. It was to study the meaning of words. And that's important too, but that wasn't the kind of meaning that I really wanted to study. So that's actually why I left philosophy after getting my PhD to go into business because I wanted to make meaning. I wanted to make a difference in the real world. And I don't think that I'm unique in that regard at all. So in that respect, I think meaning makes a difference in one's own life. But as I've also discovered as kind of a privileged office worker or professor is that the economy is built on the backs of people who are doing the hard labor on the shop floors and in the call centers and so on. The people whose work is delegated to them by other people who are usually more powerful and more privileged. And those people with the power who are often my students, you know, I teach in undergraduate and MBA business programs, people who are part of the fortunate few who will get these degrees and advanced degrees so that they can lead others. They have the power not only to make their own work more meaningful, but also to help make other people's work more meaningful. And given that we spend the largest share of our waking adult lives working, meaningful work is fundamental for many of us to a meaningful life. Yeah, I mean, it's such a big domain in our lives. And, you know, uh, you know, there's the old phrase or song of like working for the weekend. And if you don't have meaning at work, you hope that there's something you can do in the evening with your kids or your family or your community or something you can do on the weekend to kind of get back some enjoyment and feel good, you know, about your life and hopefully contribute something. 
Um, and I think that when business is more fully actualized and it's led by people, whether they're uh, ethics practitioners or they maybe become an ethics expert at some point or just run by a CEO or a COO or a regional manager who cares about this and has integrated this, I think when we can make that big bolus of your time that's spent in and at and around and commuting to and living in a certain place based on your work, um, you can find that purpose and meaning, you know, you can find that it's contributed to by your work, not something that you use to kind of stay alive and then, you know, try to get some meaning in the, you know, two to four hours you have at night to do something else. One of my dirty secrets, which will no longer be a secret after this airs, is that working for the weekend is one of my favorite karaoke songs. Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, I, uh, I I may borrow that from you. I just uh, went to karaoke uh, here in Charlotte uh, about a month ago, but that wasn't on my <laughs> list. It will be now. <laughs> um, so as we kind of get toward the end here, Christopher, tell me, you know, maybe tell me something that you try to leave your students with, or you would, you know, you would like to, to challenge, you know, our audience is largely made up by people at, who are practitioners in the ethics and compliance industry. Um, do you have a challenge or an encouragement for us um, that, you know, uh, you think that if more people understood and knew that, you know, things would get better month after month? I have nothing magic to share, but okay. I will say that one of the things that I often tell my students is that I hope after thinking with me, reflecting with me, talking with me in a class about professional responsibility, business ethics, leadership, and so on, that they think about the fact that we often think of ourselves as two different people, sort of the, the person we are at work and the person we are at home, or the professional us and the personal us. And we think of those as often two different people. And that's not to say that we aren't different people in different places. You know, I'm, I don't talk to my kids like this, for example, but I do talk with my kids about this stuff. And so one thing that I would encourage people to think about is how can you be that wonderful, lovable, caring person you are in your personal life at work? Don't settle for work that requires you to be a person that you're not proud of. That's great, I love that. Don't settle for that and try to find a workplace and be a person in the workplace where you can be the kind, loving, lovable person you are in your personal life. Um, yeah, that's really powerful. And I think that we should want to find that for ourselves in our work. We should want to be that person as well as help other people around us, right? Because you know, if you're an ethics expert, if you run a compliance program, you have influence on a bunch of people in your organization and increasingly more influence on the direction of the organization. Um, you can help other people find and be that. And you know, we uh, we talk within our company here about you know we don't want we we don't want those two different people. We want you know we we talk not about work life balance of you know well work enough so that you can enjoy yourself outside of work, but work-life integration where you should be able to be your real self here at work and, you know, be supported in the things that you're struggling through or talk about the things that matter to you or whatever. Um, and those should be joined and you shouldn't have to kind of splice your personality to put on a mask and come to work just to, you know, hopefully get something so that you can enjoy yourself outside of work. I really like that. 
Yeah, I, I love how you put that. And it also reminds me that sometimes we think of work as sort of a means to an end so that we can do the really meaningful stuff outside of work. Yeah. But if you're doing work that's meaningful, then that can be part of your meaningful contribution that you can make in this life. That's awesome. Yeah, they, they, I think that's something that I strive for. I see, you know, meaning in the work we do here at our company. And some of that is basic, like providing people a living and giving them a good job where they can develop themselves and it wouldn't matter what we're doing. Uh, but also, you know, I think in the compliance and ethics industry, we have, a, we have a chance for that to ripple out to the people we impact and the managers we train and the, the, the behaviors that we can um, influence. Um, and, you know, just as, as you're talking about that integration and being the person that you should want to be and that you are outside of work in work. Um, I, uh, it, it reminds me of this quote. Um, you, you probably, I, I wouldn't be surprised if nobody else knows this, but you probably know it um, from Epictetus, an old Stoic. He said, I'm tired in my teaching of invoking examples from the past. I want to be able to hold up an example from my time. And I think that there are a lot of people who are ethics experts who say, you know what, I want to be that example. And I want to be, I want to be at a company that raises up people and puts people in leadership who are those examples. And we don't have to imagine this uh, moral saint from the past and, you know, painted in this, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, cloudy light that just, you know, they, they got a filter on them. Um, we can be those people today and we can have that positive impact through our roles, through our job and through the workplaces that we influence. You know, I hadn't heard that quote before. I, I told you I'm not an expert. <laughs> okay, well, you lived up to it then. Uh, I hadn't heard it before last week. So uh, the, <laughs> it's, see, it sounded like you'd known it forever. Oh, well, that's because I'm reading it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, uh, anything else that um, we should cover before we finish, Christopher, you want to talk about the books and should we keep an eye out for those or um, anywhere that people could uh, learn more about you and from you? Keep an eye out for the books, but be patient because they're both in their very early stages. So cool. just, uh, you know, maybe in a couple of years, okay. then uh, you should look out for them on the shelves. Um, also, I'm kind of new to the world of podcasting, but I have a podcast of my own in which we often explore works of literature and film and art to talk about the connection between that and meaningful work. And it's called Work in Progress with Christopher Michelson. The only reason my name is in the title is that there are a zillion work in progress podcasts out there. Uh -huh. So anyway, I hope that uh, you'll listen to those too. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, definitely ch check out Christopher's uh, podcast. I'll, I'll be checking it out. Um, you know, you were talking about literature and what, uh, what CEOs read um, before and, you know, two, two that came to mind for me in case, you know, you're looking for some fodder for the podcast um, that I think are good as business leaders is one, Les Miserables. I think a lot of people have uh, seen the play uh, but the book is, it's long, but, uh, you know, I think it, it has a lot of that empathy and that struggle and that what it's like to kind of stand up for something that's right and suffer through it and stick through it. Um, and another one uh, that's uh, one of my favorites is A Brave New World. It's a little bit more of a cautionary tale about what happens when uh, we kind of lose some of that meaning and some sight of that. Uh, Those so just are some ideas and just some things that I like. <laughs> Good examples. I've read Brave New World. I know of Les Mis, but I have never seen it or read it. Um, and uh, that's a big project, but uh, I'll put <laughs> it on my list. Audiobook, which was a little bit easier. Good idea. <laughs> Thank you, well, Giovanni. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, you, uh, you said you're new to uh, the podcast world, but you were a great guest. I really appreciate 
you sharing your insights and the things that you're passionate about. And I just personally, Christopher, appreciate the work that you do. I think that the way that you're thinking about these things, the passion that you have for marrying ethics with practice and making a positive impact on this massive social institution that is business, I think it's great for the world. I've learned from you. I appreciate you sharing your genius with our audience. Um, and I, uh, I would like to give you an advanced invite come back on the podcast whenever those books are done. We'd love to have you and talk about those books and tell our audience about it. But thanks for being here today. It's been a blessing to us. Um, and please keep doing the great work that you're doing. It's my pleasure. Thank you for doing your work, your podcast, and the work that you do to make ethics matter. Well, this has been great. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Giovanni Gallo from Compliance Line. And uh, we've been uh, meeting with Christopher Michelson today. Please check him out and be on the lookout for those books and check out Work in Progress with Chris Christopher Michelson. Mm -hmm.